It was just one month ago that we got confirmation from J.P. Morgan Chase that its network had been breached by a sophisticated cyber attack waged over the summer. Since then, we've learned that other banks and financial services firms may have been impacted too, as hackers in some cases are believed to have probed and in other cases actually breached those networks. But details surrounding these alleged attacks and hacks have been varied, conflicting, and often denied by banks reportedly involved. So is there anything definitive we can say we've learned in the wake of the breach at Chase? And what is the overarching message and lesson for other banking institutions? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm joined today by Mark Clancy, Managing Director of Technology Risk and Management at the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, to discuss what we know about the breach at Chase and the information that is being shared among other banks in the background. So Mark, one of the things that fascinated me about the breach at Chase and then the subsequent news related to other banks that have allegedly been probed is that no one seems to know for sure who might have been probed versus who might have been breached. Why is it so difficult for us to decipher some of this information? Well, and not specifically about Chase, but in general, the challenge that we have is, you know, attackers have varying tactics. They use different methods to go after infrastructures, and the infrastructures themselves don't look the same. And what we found is when we're able to share information between institutions about these attacks, um, frequently what happens is one institution sees something and says, hey, this is strange. Is anybody else seeing this? And a bunch of other institutions look and give feedback saying, yes, I see it. No, I don't. Um, and what happens is you get a response back from the community of other people say, yeah, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. Um, then you get start to get that picture of what the other probes are. Um, frequently at the time we're starting that dialogue about the sharing, the impact of what that trigger is is not known. And therefore, as the facts evolve, you know, investigations occur both at the initial reporting institution and the subsequent institutions, then you start to get a bigger picture as to what's happening. So that's a nice segue into my next question, Mark, and that is how much information sharing actually takes place in the background when we see incidents like this? Quite a bit, and it's very common for financial institutions through the FSI Act to have shared information about attacks prior to them, you know, leading to their understanding of the incident and then subsequent disclosures they make for consumer notification or regulatory notification purposes. But there's a lot of information sharing going on. In fact, there's so much of it now, it's hard to consume all of it. And so one of the things we've been working on is how do we create efficiencies around that. But there's a ton of information that's being shared particularly through the FSI SAC and other community sources that let institutions get a sense on not just what their environment looks like, but what are the bad guys actually doing. Mark, some sources have said that Chase provided information about its attack to law enforcement, but it didn't really share that information with other banking institutions or industry groups right away. I know that you can't comment about Chase specifically, but can you walk us through what kind of information may be shared and is this type of scenario typical? We as a community frequently share information. Again, we share it at sort of the time and point of detection, like, hey, I'm seeing this in my logs, I'm seeing this on my sensors. Here's the technical data, you know, the IP address, the browser strings, the URLs that are being used, the location where malware is coming from, those kinds of things. Um, that's sort of technical apparatus. And so we've been sharing that for quite a while. We've been getting very good at it in volume. Um, we don't share as much the, here's the impact, this is what happened, this is what was targeted. Because um, quite frankly, that information isn't as useful to defenders of infrastructures to protect their environment, right? We want to know what to go look for in our environment. And my experience has been in all of these incidents, um, no one of them in particular, that typically the technical information through the FSI SAC has been shared early in advance. And we do it in a way that does allow for the non-attribution. So the contributing party can remove their identity from the submitted data. So we can get it out to the broader community so the community can defend itself. 
but then we're not dealing with responding to particular issues at an individual institution. Those institutions also share with law enforcement, and it's actually not uncommon for us to see sharing through the FSI SAC, and then sharing by that party to law enforcement, and then that information coming back again through the FSI SAC from law enforcement, sometimes within digital data because perhaps the investigation has progressed, or law enforcement or government had other related data to add to the description of the problem. And so that's a pretty typical pattern. Uh, and one actually thinks that shows the process is actually working. Going back to the point that you made about the sharing of IP addresses and some of the other technical information, Mark, these alleged IP addresses that were linked to the attack traffic that targeted Chase appear to be varied. So some of the IP addresses that were shared by law enforcement seem to differ from those that were shared by the FSI SAC. Can you help us understand why we have such a difficult time determining what traffic we should be watching? Well, as you know, attackers, their number one job is to not get discovered, not get caught, right? So that's what they're trying to do. So they're making it hard for us. That's part one. Part two is the understanding of the issue perfects over time. So what we know on day one when the initial trigger is reached and what we know on day 10 and what we know on day 30 and what we do on day 60 is different. So part of it is you also have to understand the point in time at which the reporting occurred. And so initial reports, almost always are incomplete because you've just started your investigation. As you progress to an investigation, you learn more and more and you have much more completing. And perhaps new things come in or things that were previously reported were realized that, you know what, it's not actually related to this issue. And so then it gets dropped out of subsequent reports. And that's very common in all of these issues because you're trying to perfect your understanding as you go through your response and investigation processes. Mark, I've also heard that it's been challenging for banking institutions to actually know if they've been probed with traffic that may be similar to what was waged against Chase or any other type of attack for that matter. Uh, But one of the reasons that they have a difficult time kind of doing this comparative analysis is because the network infrastructures vary so greatly. So the same probe could look very different from a traffic perspective depending on how the network is set up. Can you help explain or clarify why that's an issue or why that's true? Yeah, there's two reasons. One is the technology infrastructures run by different institutions aren't the same. So, you know, we run a stack from brand A, another bank runs a stack from brand B. So they don't have the same technical configuration. Um, The other is we use different tools and sensors to go look at our environment, right? There's a robust marketplace for these tools. And so the tools have different capabilities. And depending on what the attackers are doing, the point where you observe their attack varies. And so you know, almost every institution can look at source and destination IP addresses. Many institutions can look at URL strings. Many institutions can look at information about what types of browsers are being used for the websites and others. And then some and some can't look at, for example, cryptographic checksums of files that may show up on a potentially compromised host. And so part of the challenge you have is twofold. One is you have a different set of technologies, and the second, in terms of how you run your banking operation, and then the second is you have a different set of technology in terms of your detective and observational capabilities. And oh, by the way, it's not like the attackers tell us, hey, we're going to go probe all 25 top banks, right? So you've got to go through that discovery process to intersect how your technology works with the threat data that you get, with the tools and systems you have to go look for it. And that's why you get pretty varied results, right? You've got to have all three pieces. You've got to have technology that maps to what they're doing. You've got to have tools to look for it, and you've got to know what to look for. So when you have all these different pieces that you need to look for, how could we ever then determine whether or not these attacks are being waged by the same group or if it's multiple attacks that are being waged by varying groups? How challenging does this make attribution? Well, attribution is what we consider to be the hard problem, right? And at some level, attribution to a financial institution doesn't really matter. It matters a lot for law enforcement and you know, proceeding and prosecutions and those kind of things. But when we're talking about defending networks, 
kind of attribution we're trying to understand is what is the type of attacker? Is it a criminal? Is it a hacktivist? Is it an espionage actor? Is it a warlike actor? Because that sort of driver or motivation lets us know what the objective might be, and then we can figure out where to go from there. Whether it's you know group A, group B, or group C. Well, important to know from an intelligence law enforcement perspective, is not crucial to know from an institution responding to an incident or another institution getting situational awareness. We do, however, like to develop that information over time to get a sense of who's targeting us and why. And when we know something about who's targeting us and why, we understand the tactics and methods they use. And if their plan A didn't work, we then might have a sense of what their option B and C or plan B and C look like and can be ready for, you know, we've countered them in the first method, now they're going to come by some other method and we'll be ready for that. So Mark, taking a step back and looking at all that we've been talking about over the course of the last four weeks, what's the overall message here or lesson for banking institutions? I think the key is that if you're not already in a circle where you're sharing information about threats, get in one quickly. Because really the best way to have an understanding of what's happening when you have any of these incidents that have been in the news or any of the incidents that are not in the news is have that situation awareness of what are your peers seeing for attacks and are you observing that activity? Or if you're perhaps less advanced, are you even able to observe that activity? And asking yourself, if I get this, you know, what we call threat observable data, can I actually act on it? And can I do something with it? Whether it's to detect it or prevent the bad thing from happening. And then going forward, how can we decipher the good information about these attacks from the bad information or the information that just isn't factual? I think that's a big challenge we have. I mean, there's a little bit of education that, that needs to occur in terms of you know, the difference between an intrusion and a probe. And there was a good quote you know, about you know, robbers jiggling the locks as opposed to breaking in and the difference there. Um, so I think part of it is getting the understanding of exactly what happens and what, what is an attack versus a breach versus an intrusion versus a probe. Um, the second is recognizing that you know, we are, when we respond to these incidents, any institution is, that we've got a lot of different equities we're trying to satisfy. You know, we're trying to support the investigation of a crime. We're trying to protect our customers. We're trying to inform our regulators and the public as appropriate as what's happening. But as we're doing that, the knowledge that we have gets better over time. And one of the pressures we have, we call it the race to the top of the ladder, is we detect something a moment in time, you know, two seconds ago, it's going to take us a while to get mastery of all the facts, but the pressure to start disclosing and disclaiming information builds immediately upon initial discovery, even when we don't have a full understanding of what has yet happened. Um, and that's one of the challenging pieces. You know, we're talking about infrastructures with thousands of devices sometimes and petabytes of data, and it takes a long time to go through those environments and figure out what happened to them. There's this also sort of expectation match of, how quickly do we have perfect knowledge? And the short answer is, you know, it takes weeks to months to get full mastery of what happened in one of these events. And then, Mark, before we close, are there any other thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, one thing that we've been working on with DTCC and the FSI Act is how could we create efficiencies and how can we change the economics of the cybercrime problem? And essentially today, it is very inexpensive to attack and very costly to defend. And that gives attackers opportunities to reuse attacks. So they build an attack targeting institution one, and they do the same attack against two, three, and four. And if we can change the model where in order to attack four institutions, they have to make four separate attacks and use four different sets of infrastructure, we can increase the attacker's cost. And if we can reduce the defender's cost through automation and standardization and get that straight through processing of that threat data, right? we can reduce the defender's cost at the same time we're devaluing the attack infrastructure and increasing the attacker's cost, and we can start to sort of right shape this very asymmetrical problem where you know, $1,000 order of magnitude attack might cost a million dollars to defend against. 
if we could make that attack cost $50,000 and cost $200,000 to defend, all right, we're in a much better place. And that's what we're doing with the, the joint venture that we have with DTC and Emphasize Act called Sulfur. And if our listeners want to get more information about this initiative, can they find some of that on your website or is there another place they can go? Yeah, you can go to our website, www.soltra.com. Mark, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Mark Clancy of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.